be seated. Well, again, it's a pleasure to be with you today. If we haven't met, which is, which is possible, uh, my name is Grant Miller. I get to work here at the church with our college students. In addition to my, my full-time gig, which is across the street, and then you serving as chaplain there. Uh, I am glad to be here, and I'm, I'm excited to tell you, not because uh, I didn't enjoy where we've been, but this is our last week, our last sermon in our series on the book of Revelation. So that's exciting. Now, I, I will be honest, I'm a little nervous preaching the last in a series where one person has preached every other message in the series. And last week, honestly, Scott put a really good bow on it, and he took really honestly one of the best parts of the section I was supposed to do. And I, heard, I listened to him last week, I listened to him twice. I led music out at Middleton and heard his sermon there, and I followed him here to help with communion and got here in time to hear it again. And I was like, I'm not totally sure where you want me to take this, Scott. And he said, oh, you just, just I left you two chapters mostly. Just pick something that's good and don't ruin it. <laughs> so I'm approaching this morning with a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of anxiety, because Scott, really, the sermon series has been great. It's been a huge blessing to be engaging the text of Revelation, uh, challenging some of these notions, right, that we have to do all this uh, kind of conspiracy napkin math try to figure out what the end times mean, how we, how we stay on the right side, how we make it to heaven or whatever. It's, it's not something we need to panic about or be afraid of or just throw our hands up at the mystery of and abandon it, uh, but instead a place where we can really engage it with excitement. I'll never forget, for me, the, the, the first interaction I had with Revelation in terms of in-depth study. Um, I was a junior. I just finished my junior year at NNU, and I needed an upper division uh, Bible class. And uh, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make my credits going to my senior year. So over the summer, I took a, a class, uh, an inten- a summer intensive from Multnomah Bible College back in Portland, Oregon, where I, I'm from, Vancouver, Washington. But it was a summer intensive on the book of Hebrews through Revelation. And I got the course materials and looked at it. And Hebrews through Jude was about half of the book of the text we had. And the rest was Revelation. And I'm already a little bit nervous about going to Multnomah. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called Multnomah University now, but it still retains that really strong connection and heritage. Every student who goes there has, gets a degree in Bible in addition to whatever else they study. So I'm thinking, I'm coming into the upper division class. I'm not a, I wasn't a Christian ministries or biblical uh, literature major, and so I was kind of walking into it unsure. Also, uh, it's a reformed seminary, so I knew that there would be some different ideas. I was nervous that I was going to look the wrong way and get told I was predestined to go one way or the other. That's a little theology joke. Nice. Thanks for laughing. So I walked in a lot of anxiety, and this, this biblical scholar comes in the room. I'll never forget the first day. And these were, these were 8 to 5 days, right? 8, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., just nose deep. Uh, nose deep? Yeah, I guess so. That makes sense. Um, and he comes in and sets his stuff down. And we were going through the books in order as they appear in Scripture. So we weren't starting with Revelation, but he sets his things down, and he says, I want you all to know something. This man had come in with the burden, I'm sure, of, at that point, several sequential years of left-behind novels coming out year after year after year. And people, I'm sure, signing up for his course, thinking that they were going to somehow get the keys to unlock all the mysteries and secrets of who the Antichrist was and how exactly the new church was going to look or whatever. And he just said, I want you all to know something right now. Everything you think you know about Revelation is probably wrong. Probably wrong. <laughs> Which put me actually at ease because I, like I said, I was already kind of nervous about being out of my element. And I was like, oh, everybody, everybody's wrong. That's great. That's good. We're all at least starting from the same place. 
But what he meant, obviously, was not uh, this kind of snob. He, was, he wasn't trying to be snobbish or, or rude or really to, to demean anybody. But what he was saying was, look, as has been said here by Scott, so many times when we approach the text of Revelation, we're just trying to figure it out. And what we end up doing is chasing these rabbit trails down places to discover things that ultimately aren't really helpful for us or helpful for us as we tr- seek to inhabit the kingdom of God today. Because as Scott has really highlighted for us, the practical message of Revelation that is powerful and permanent and doesn't need to be relegated to some future point that we won't understand or some inscrutable biblical principle that we have to somehow get the right key or, or, or cipher to unlock what it means. It's this, right? What does it look like for the church, for the bride of Christ, for you and I to bear the mark of the lamb in a world that is just inundated with the mark of the beast? Options to, to get branded by all of those things that the beast stands for, that the beast calls us with, that the, the woman, the prostitute of Babylon would try to pull from us, pull us into. So yeah, Scott has done a fantastic and faithful job there. And I, I'm going to be honest, as I've been preparing this morning, I'm not sure that I could say anything that he hasn't said already better than what I would hope to say this morning. But I do think it's wise, for one thing, not to end this series. I think if I'm counting correctly, this is the eighth message in this series on Revelation, which if we've been paying attention, things, it, seven is a number of completion, but it doesn't always bring good things in the book of Revelation, right? <laughs> seven bulls, seven trumpets, right? These are not fun things. So it's wise to add another one on just to show we're not ending in, in wrath. And if I haven't counted correctly and this is number seven, well, we'll see how it goes this morning, I guess. But today I hope, I hope though, in, in my humble attempt to, to put another bow on this Beautiful, beautifully wrapped package that we can offer at least one clear takeaway from our last section of this text, chapters 21 and 22. Before I get into the text, before we read it this morning, I want to invite you to do something that I like to invite the students across the street to do pretty much every time I, I preach. And that's this. Um, I want to ask you a question. You think about it a little bit and you turn to your neighbor and you share it. Uh, we, get, we get a little bit of talking here going. Uh, so here's my question. I want you to imagine, think of a time in your life Maybe the time in your life where you experienced the deepest sense of awestruck wonder, to pull that phrase from the great hymn. Time where you felt the most kind of uh, deeply connected to what was around you and also just heightened awareness of, of, of this incredible maybe majesty of a moment or a scenic place that you were in. I want you to think about that when you felt that most intensely and then share that with your neighbor. Ready? Go. Okay, switch. If you've been hogging all the time, you got to switch, okay? I see some of you. <clears throat> okay. So, so I'm sure some of you probably said uh, maybe an experience that you had. Uh, I know for me, one of the places my mind goes when I think about this question, if I were being asked this question, 
um, it's not a specific location per se, but it's the delivery room, right? The, the arrival of my children where, where it was just like, right? Everything just, time stops. So you just feel the weight of the moment. It's almost unbearable. Like you, you can't figure out, you, you need a place to go through emotions and you don't know where to go. And it's just, you just, your brain kind of misfires for a little bit. At least that's how it was for me. Or maybe it was like a scenic location. I, I had the opportunity to travel to China once upon a time. And I remember we climbed up to the top of the Great Wall. And there's that moment, if you've ever been, uh, which is maybe a few of us in the room, you crest that first big climb and you see the wall just covering hill after hill after hill off into the distance. And just the sheer scope of it is just kind of takes your breath away. Another, another place that's for me, of all places, kind of funny. When I was in high school, I went to Washington, D.C. for a week-long youth leadership conference. I was there by myself. We were touring. I kind of got away from the group, which wasn't really my scene. And I was at the Lincoln Memorial by myself. And the Lincoln Memorial, for some reason, just hit me. I, it was probably because I was 17. It was the longest I had ever been away from home, like for an extended period of time across the country. It was an intense week. And I just, for whatever reason, I'm just standing there reading the second inaugural, which is on the wall there at the memorial, and just weeping, just finding myself weeping. And I think part of that's because that, that's, these spaces are kind of, if we could say, they're, they're sort of holy, they're, 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 they seem kept, they seem, uh, there's purpose imbued in them. I read those words of Lincoln's second inaugural, which is short, it's, it's a five minute speech. Can you imagine an inaugural address, five minutes, all that pompous circumstance. Five minute speech, but Lincoln delivers it, with about a month to go before the Civil War is over and recognizes that the occasion might not be the best for this grandiose moment. But as I was considering this, I was reading the second inaugural back and it's, you're gonna hear it here. It connects so well to where we're going today. But that address ends like this. This is the line. These are the lines that just caused me to just weep. The Lincoln closes his address by saying that with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Boy, I read those words and just lost it. I think I still kind of feel the, the weight of those words and go, man, can you imagine? It'd be nice to inhabit that spirit, right, in our political world. But I want you to be thinking about that today, get in that headspace, that mindset. Remember that moment, that, that feeling, like I said, that where you become suddenly aware that there's something inside of you that's not just flesh and bone, right? There's a soul, there's something eternal in you that is calling out, that is reaching, that is longing for something more, that's resonating with something outside of yourself that makes you go, oh, and time stops and you just have this weight of the moment and you feel it because that's exactly where we're going today at the book of Reve in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21. It's this beautiful unification of all things, a reconciliation of all things in a uniting of spirit. Now this is valuable for us and I'm glad we can end here because it will hopefully build out more and where Scott hopes to go in the future. But you know, you've heard this. Scott constantly talks about, not constantly, but frequently references. These ideas, these competing conceptions of time in the scripture. So one is, is remember, chronos. This is a, a physical passage of time. Minutes, seconds, seconds, minutes, hours, days, right? What we track on our watches, this chronological uh, 
spectrum of time. And then there's a, a, a bigger idea, one that he wants to lean into, I think we are called to lean into, is, is this idea of kairos, right? God's time, God's age, God's era. And it's one that begins at all of creation, co- takes its course through all of time. We're somewhere here in the middle. And then over here at the end, I think I'm even doing this right. He goes over and walks over here. Somewhere here at the end, all of eternity is made right. All things are made new. Everything is reconciled to the Lord. And we are brought together as one in Jesus Christ. And then there's a line, you, and here we are in the middle. And the kingdom is trying to break in now, right? You guys remember this language, right? The kairos of God, God's time, God's lordship is trying to break in now so that we might be inhabiting the kingdom of God today, reflecting his glory for all the nations forever and ever. Amen, right? Directing us toward there. But it's actively happening, right? Still happening. But pay attention today because what we are describing today and what the book of Revelation is describing is this in its entirety. And if we have a good picture of what this is, it's going to make us a lot better at living it out here, right? Which is beautiful. It's exciting. Really exciting. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 21. I won't ask you to stand today. It's a pretty long passage. There's a lot of details. I want you to bear down. You can do it. We'll get through it. And I promise you, we're weeding through the details of this passage, the numbers, the various gemstones, which you'll see, because it's all going to bring us around to the fullness of what this story is trying to tell us. Chapter 21, verse 9, the book of Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues spoke with me. Come, he said, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. He took me in a spirit-inspired trance, to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city had God's glory. Its brilliance was like a priceless jewel, like jasper that was as clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. By the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons. There were three gates on the east, Three gates to the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles. The angel who spoke to me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now, the city was laid out as a square. Its length was the same as its width. He measured the city with the rod, and it was 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height were equal. He also measured the thickness of the wall. It was 216 feet thick. As a person, or rather, an angel measures things. The wall was built out of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like pure glass. The city wall's foundations were decorated with every kind of jewel. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth was beryl. The ninth was topaz, the tenth was chrysoprase, the eleventh was jacinth, and the twelfth was amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was made from a single pearl, and the city's main street was pure gold, as transparent as glass. I didn't see a temple in the city, because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anything or anyone who does what is vile and deceitful, but only those who are registered in the lamb's book of life. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Man, what a vision, right? If you've paid attention as we've unpacked Revelation so far, you know that you, you can hardly go two or three verses without stumbling over a cross-reference or a piece of symbolism or a textual connection to somewhere else in Scripture. John the Revelator is pulling a lot, and his visions are pulling a lot from, from former visions of the end times, former apocalyptic visions, but also visions that have been given to prophets throughout history. This is especially true in this passage, right? Because anytime we start talking about the temple, start, we start having callbacks just all over the place. It makes sense to me that John, when he gets into the new city, would say, oh, there's no temple here. When I looked, I didn't see a temple, he says. Before we go on, I think that's significant. John is being given a vision of the new city. And, and going back to before he can remember, right? Well before ancient history for him in Israel, there's always been a meeting place, a gathering place for where we worship God, whether that's the tabernacle or the temple and even still, right, in Roman culture, where he's writing, the context in which he's writing, temple culture dominates the day. And it's not just a place where we go to worship, but in Jerusalem, the temple is a place of, of exchange, of ideas. It's an important cultural center. And so it makes sense now that as John stands in the holy city and looks around, oh, we're united with God. We're all together. The end has come. We're here to worship in perfect and holy union. There's no temple. Where are we supposed to do it? I'm confused. Now, if he'd been paying attention before he got to verse 22, where he says, I don't see a temple, when we had all of these descriptions of this incredible city, he might have caught what you will hopefully catch today. Details that are held over from a lot of flyover chapters in your read through the Bible in a year plan, right? Places from Exodus, Kings. See, this city is dripping with temple imagery. And so it makes profound and deep sense that this temple has, excuse me, this city has no temple because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. There's lots of places where this shows up, and I'm just going to highlight a few of them for you, hopefully motivating you to go back and read some of these chapters and, and catching all of this material. It's so valuable for us. First is this, the shape of the city. Now, the city is massive, and it, it comes out of the sky. And I don't know if, this, if we're going for a literal idea here, but a 1,500-mile wall, it settles, 1,500 miles square, 1,500 miles to the north, 1,500 miles to the south, 1,500 miles east, to the west. It's enormous, right? It stretches across a huge swath of land on this earth. And then he, he takes this, this measuring rod that he's given by the angel, calling back to Ezekiel 11, where, where the angel gives Ezekiel a measuring rod and says, measure out the city. And actually even to Revelations chapter 11, if you'll remember, John the Revelator is given the rod and said, measure out this temple. Well, now he's called to measure out this new city, which is a temple. And it's 1,500 miles on one wall, 1,500 miles on the other, it's a square. But then we're also told it's 1,500 miles in height. It's equal. Those of you who are connecting the elementary arithmetic know this is a shape. What is it? It's a cube. You might go, oh, cube. Great. And if you're like me, uh, you like Star Trek, you go, oh, the Borg are here. The Borg have come and settled. That's a very niche reference, and I hope that some of you 90s Star Trek fans will understand it. We have been assimilated, right? But no, if you've been paying attention to Scripture, and if, and if you, you, you notice this here, there's one other place in Scripture where there's a cube explicitly mentioned. When Solomon marks out the place for the temple, we're told that the Holy of Holies is 20 by 20 by 20. This place 
within which God's presence comes to dwell with his people, within which God is sort of considered to, to rest. The Holy of Holies where only the high priest is permitted to go in to make sacrifices for the people. The Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the light that never goes away and the showbread and all these other incredibly important artifacts and pieces of religious memory are held and kept sacred and separate because only God's incredible Shekinah glory can dwell there. Well, now we have that same figure, but it's been expanded massively for everyone to come and fit and participate. The city, the bride is the temple and God is at its center. Powerful, right? Incredible. Another one that that stands out to me is this long list of gemstones we have in this story. We We have 12 of them. It says that the 12 foundations of the temple are decorated with these 12 stones. And while you might hear that and go, oh yeah, that's neat. How pretty, right? Oh, that's nice. That's sweet. John has a really vivid imagination. There's another place in scripture where 12 brilliant, shining gemstones are present. Exodus chapter 28, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God and God gives him really explicit instructions. This is how the tabernacle is supposed to be made. Here's how you set it up. Here's how you tear it down. Here's where it's supposed to go. Here's the rhythm that's supposed to be. Nestled in in that section, which you might not remember, again, it's a bit of a flyover section for us read through the Bible and your people are explicit instructions for the garments that the priests are supposed to wear. There's all this vivid description of the threads, what's supposed to hang where, how it attaches, how you wear it specifically. And right smack in the middle of the high priest is this incredibly ornate breastplate. And in the middle of that breastplate are four rows of three gemstones, each one unique each one inscribed with one of the names of the tribes of Israel so that the priest knows as he walks through the tabernacle, he represents and bears the burdens of all of the people of Israel as embodying these 12 tribes. And now those stones have been plucked right out of that historical memory and they have been slabbed on to the foundation of this city. You see what's being built here, right? Because what are those foundations called? Inscribed upon them? These jewels are used to adorn them, but inscribed upon them are the 12 names of the apostles of Christ. So again, catch the vision here of a holy city, the holy city, the holy of holies, 1,500 miles cubed with foundations that are a fusion of the old, the 12 tribes of Israel and the new, the 12 apostles of Christ, completion, old and new being brought together so that all may be reconciled together to worship in unity and peace and joy with Christ the Lamb, right? Incredible, incredible moment. It's reflected further with these gates that surround the city. Again, symbolism just dripping off of this place. There's three gates. And I don't really know how the new earth will work out, if there's magnetic poles, what a true north will look like there. But we're told distinctly, on purpose, I think, that there are three gates. Three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. Calling back to the instructions received again by Moses. When you take the tabernacle out into the wilderness, when you stop to camp, you set up the tabernacle first. Three tribes camped to the north. Three tribes came to the south. Three tribes came to the east. Three to the west. Encircling the tabernacle, symbolically representing that we, at our center, worship Yahweh and we emanate out. Also protecting the tabernacle. But now, instead of protecting the tabernacle, camping outside the Holy of Holies and protecting anything from getting in. We all camp inside, right? 
There's no longer camping outside. We are brought in to be a part of it. But still the representation of these gates pointing all these directions, signifying again, this unity, this holiness, this gathering. And finally, uh, just, just, just for, for us today, there's lots more here, is the light that shines. We call that within the Holy of Holies, there's lots of precious things in the historic Holy of Holies in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant, which carries the, the 12 commandments, the tablets, the showbread, and also the menorah, which has seven candles, which are never to be extinguished. There's even a secret recipe for the oil that's kept in the Holy of Holies alongside the menorah. Right, this light that never goes out to represent right, God's presence dwelling, the light emanating out. Now, the difference between that with that Holy of Holies was that there was an enormously thick shroud, a veil that covered that section of the temple. Instead, what we read here is this, and I'll read it again. Verse 23, the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light. Its lamp is the lamb. God's glory is its light and the lamp is the one by which we take direction and project it and understand it. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Now, follow the logic with me here, right? The glory of the Lord is the light, never goes out. The gates of the city will never be shut and there is no night. The gates, of, excuse me, the gates of the city will never be shut by day and there is no night because it's always day. So then the gates of the city never shut. They're always open because there is now nothing to fear outside of the city. Nothing will be permitted, permitted to enter in. And yet that's a tough truth to wrestle with. And one of the nagging ideas Revelation that makes it sobering to preach is something that Scott has said before. John the Revelator is irritatingly black and white. Irritating if you, if you really want to have a little gray area here. Because it is constantly reminded of, to us that those who go out, who seek and embrace the mark of the beast who, as Scott has said, over and over again, after lamentation, after lamentation, after calamity, after calamity, continue to refuse to repent, after chance, after chance, after chance, embrace the beast, embrace the false prostitute of Babylon, embrace lies and sexual morality and, and falsehoods and cowardice as is listed in the, in the text in Revelation chapter 21. And again in Revelation chapter 22, these things are listed as barriers to getting in to the city. All of those things, as C.S. Lewis says, all those things that have amounted to locking the gates of hell from the inside, right? We don't want any part of it. They are taken, and Scott skipped over this section, I'm a little mad at him about this. They are taken and cast away, death and Hades, Satan and the beast, into the lake of fire. And that's sobering for me as I read this passage. And there's competing ideas here, honestly. Um, if you go into biblical scholarship, there's some folks who say, well, if everything's gone in the lake of fire from a couple chapters ago, uh, why are there gates in the first place? Right? Uh, why are we still saying nothing of the, none of those things will enter in if it's all been done away with? And so they raise that question. I don't want to get into that. There's competing notions in biblical scholarship. But what I do think I have discovered is the one thing that we can take away from Revelation that everybody will agree with. Every stream 
of end times theology, every denominational doctoral position within Christianity. This is big. I think I've discovered it, right? doesn't matter if you're, if you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist or a millennial born between 1981 and 1996 or Reformed or, or Wesleyan. Liter- you think it's a literal or a metaphor or you're a dispensationalist or a hesitationalist or a Christian nationalist, whatever. We can all agree on these things. This one thing, I should say. But the message here is the city descends and gives us a vision of what the perfect united kingdom of all eternity looks like, is that eternity matters. It's not just because we have a target in mind. Oh, how nice. We have a goal, right? We got to figure out how to get there. But instead, because what it communicates to us is that if eternity matters, then... And we are a people of Kairos, of God's time, in which that kingdom is breaking in now. What we do now matters for eternity. And we have to make a decision today if we will walk hand in hand, bearing the mark of the lamb, or if we will be tempted into the mark of the beast. And we must make a decision to look at those who have embraced that and to say, the gates are still open. Come back. We have a responsibility as the church, as Christ followers who wear the mark of the lamb, to conduct ourselves in ways that are worthy of that glory and that then invite others to come and to share in that glory of eternity. Because as this revelator tells us, eternity matters. Heaven's been breaking in. It's not just waiting there. The veil has been torn, right? The Holy of Holies has been opened to us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only son of the father, right? John loves talking about light. This isn't the first time he's talked about light. It's over and over in his gospel. It's over and over in his epistles that that light is the light of all men. The light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the one and only. We have basked in his light. We have seen that amazing place where Paul says, now we with unveiled faces go forth and show his glory to all the nations, right? Recall Moses up on Mount Sinai, the same exact part we were talking about with the, with the instructions for the tabernacle, is up there for long enough. He sees God. He spends enough time in God's presence that he absorbs some of this incredible glory. He comes down the mountain and people can't stand to look at him. His face is too bright. It's beaming. It's terrible in its intensity. So he has to wear a veil so people can handle it. It's a metaphor that Paul picks up again in Corinthians and says, so now we with unveiled faces, right, show forth his glory. If we believe that, that heaven, that this eternal city, that the bride, which is us, is is now inviting all people to come in, we have to live like that matters. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that really freaks me out. It makes me panic a little bit. Because sometimes I don't live like eternity matters, to be honest with you. I look at the world. I look at the news. I have a hard day. And I go, hey, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to just hang out inside for a while. I'm good. Just like I'm going to do later today, I'm going to look at the weather. And say, you know what? That looks kind of fraught with peril. I'm going to hang out on the couch. The invitation in this passage is not to hang out on the couch. That if I really am living like eternity matters, if I'm living with an unveiled face, if I'm living like I believe that there is an eternal city waiting with gates wide open because there is no night, 
when I see injustice in the world, I am called to do something about it because eternity matters. When I see pain and hurting in the world, I am called to do something about it because eternity matters. When I see suffering, when I see the orphan, when I see the widow, I am called to embrace those things and to be present because eternity matters. And I am marked by the Lamb. If I take that seriously, if I believe in that city and I believe that it's breaking in now, I have to act. I have to do something. And it's not just for myself. It's not just about making sure that I make it, that my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's making sure that every person knows that those gates are open. And that I sell out for that. Because I don't always live like that. And it gets harder, I've become to learn, as you get older. If I'm going to be honest with you, start having kids, start looking at the world out there, start seeing all the things that can hurt them, and going, hey, you know what, maybe, I, maybe that's not for us. Maybe we retreat, we retreat, we retreat. It's such a temptation. I'm not saying that you should abandon caring for people, or of course not. What I'm saying is that the mentality that we have has to bear the marks of the eternal city, or we are doomed to simply be a small club that gets to come in. Am I living like that? Maybe for you it looks something like something different. I think in our world today, how am I living in a ways that, that, that is sneakily being enticed by Babylon? How am I collecting gold for myself, accumulating wealth, when the city that I'm aspiring to be has enough of that that they pave the roads with it? Or maybe I'm collecting jewels and I'm trying to hold on to things, maybe not priceless amethysts and jasper, but instead things that I love to look at and to hold and say, my precious, I love this, it gives me value and worth. Well, guess what? We use those for mortar. We put them in our foundation, our crawl space in the holy city. Yes, they're symbolic and they mean something, but that's what they are. They're symbols. They mean something. We don't treasure them. Do I live a life of invitation, one that actively seeks to replicate what I'm called to be in the holy city, what I'm called to be as the bride of Christ, which is a city that has no night and has its gates always open? Am I extending that invitation to others? Am I committed to a life of sanctified grace, holy practices that build me into the person that Jesus Christ wants me to be, that look like the mark of the lamb? Do I believe that I've been set apart, that there's something distinct and peculiar about the ways that Christ calls me to live in the world that looks like the city rather than whatever it is out here? One of the things I love about the closing of this passage in Revelation chapter 22 is that uh, there's another callback. It's that the garden has come back to be central. There's a garden at the center of the city. We've got work to do in the city. Scott has talked about this before too. I love it. His, his, His grandfather saying, I don't really want to go to heaven. I'll just sit there and worship for eternity and not do anything. There's work to do. We've got a garden to take care of. We've got a city to keep up. Chapter 22 extends right off of where we ended like this. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will rule forever and always. I invite our our worship team to come back up. 
It is, of course, Trinity Sunday. I feel like it would be a mistake to ignore the unique nature of this passage and what it tells us about the Trinity, or at least what it tells us about what is in store for us with relation to the Trinitarian God. And yes, it's a mystery that is so difficult to describe in human terms without straying into heretical analogies and metaphors. But what I find fascinating about this passage is that in the city is the first time that we see all three members of the Trinity participating together and we as the bride are called to full communion at the same time. We are told the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. We are told that the Lord God Almighty's glory is the light and the Lamb is the lamp. And then in the same breath, in the same thought, in chapter 22, we are told that the Spirit and the bride say, come. An invitation is extended to us to live in an attitude of partnership with the Godhead, proclaiming to all people that the gates are open and eternity matters and you are invited in. The spirit and the bride say, come, it says in Revelation chapter 22. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to receive life-giving water as a gift. The one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So as you consider the way that these two chapters end this grand narrative that is contained in this text, these holy words for us. May we be inspired to know eternity matters, not just for then, but for the now. And that by partnering with the Spirit and seeking after the face of God, we can show forth his glory to the world, that we then shall be a light to the nations. It's just a small foretaste of the glory that is to come, but that we can fully live into and realize now. There's power there. Hopefully a little conviction too, at least for me. But one that drives me to be empowered by hope to go out and change the world. Let's pray. God, we do just thank you again for your spirit who is here. Thank you that the spirit and the bride say come. I pray that we would capture a vision of what it means to participate as the bride, as members of your holy church in the world today. And God, as we capture this vision, this incredible vision of the future, this future glory that is to come. I pray, God, you would inspire us to believe that what we do today matters. Help us to see how we might bear the mark of the Lamb for the nations. We love you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand up as we sing together to close?
listening well today. Hope that you have heard that the call of Revelation is an eternal call, one that will never cease. A call to living in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have received, bearing the mark of the Lamb, overcoming not by the ways of the beast or of Babylon, but by the, the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Walking in a way that affirms that and displays it for all to see and around here, we call that the sanctified life. So today, I believe we have one more song to close, and it's so fitting to sing it together. And I would pray that at the close of this song, as we sing amen, you would go in his peace today. <laughs>